This episode of TV's Top 5 is brought to you by the Stars limited series, Mary and George. Julianne Moore and Nicholas Galitzine star in the scandalous true story of Mary Valliere, who molded her beautiful and charismatic son to seduce King James I. Quite the moment in history. See why the Hollywood Reporter calls it a delicious drama. Mary and George, for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all eligible categories. Mary and George is now streaming on the Stars app. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, my dear friend, the amazing, the one and only, THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Dan Feinberg. Wildly overrated. The wildly, not overrated, the wildly (laughs) incredible and prolific... Dan Feinberg. What's shaking, my friend? What is the good word? Speaking of prolific, I'm I'm just sitting here watching you break big news as we're about to record a podcast. So, you know, very exciting. May you live in interesting times, as the fortune cookie curse says. Yeah, may I also have a long vacation coming soon? <laughs> I really can't do anything at all about that. <laughs> yeah, well, let's get into headlines, huh? It's been a busy week for HBO Max. It will be the exclusive streaming home for the West Wing when that show's Netflix deal expires. Uh, that will be shocking and tragic for people who have Netflix, I guess. But also not surprising, considering the show is produced by Warner Brothers. Indeed. Uh, also coming to the streamer are films from uh, Studio Ghibli, which lots of people thought would never make it to streaming. So that's actually really, really cool and probably a fun thing library-wise. W- uh, which films are those for us uh, people who don't know what uh, Studio Ghibli is? That would Ghibli's. be all of the Miyazaki films uh, and then lots of other Miyazaki-adjacent films. But anyway, it's a it's a great library of wonderful animation for the whole family and had not been conveniently available in, you know, streaming form. So that's very excellent. HBO Max also handed out a series order for a Grease spinoff. That is true. I thought you were about to sing. You, you no. really got it looked like you were about to sing. Oh, well, called no, Rydell but- High. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. Exactly. And Equal, an LGBTQ-themed documentary series from the not-so-prolific Greg Berlanti <laughs> and, of course, Jim Parsons. So that's a lot of good stuff for HBO Max. What else we got? Over at HBO proper, Sarah Silverman is prepping a new late-night show and has set up a new comedy special at the Premium Cable Network. In other HBO development news, Amy Adams and Laura Dern are adapting bestseller The Most Fun We Ever Had as a drama series. Over at Showtime, the premium cable network is teaming with Billions showrunners to explore Uber's origin as a limited series. If that's interesting, I don't know. Uh, staying within the CBS family, CBS All Access has renewed Mark Cherry's Why Women Kill, which will feature a new cast of Women Who Kill when it returns for season two. Elsewhere, Patrick Moran, the former ABC Studios president, has signed an overall deal at Amazon Studios. He becomes the latest broadcast executive to head to a streamer and joins the likes of Jen Salky, Channing Dungey, Bob Greenblatt, Kevin Riley. Oh, hell, you're getting the theme here. 
And in breaking news, Kurt Sutter has been fired from FX's Sons of Anarchy spinoff Mayans following multiple claims about his abusive behavior. Sutter detailed his firing by FX CEO John Landgraf and Disney TV Studios chairman Dana Walden in an explosive letter to cast and crew in which he writes that he was a, quote, abusive dick. He remains in business, however, with Disney, as the overall deal he signed back in January 2018 has not been affected. We are all shocked. And finally, in terms of nothing ever dies and no brand can't be turned into a procedural mystery, a new take on the classic comedy Clueless is in the works at CBS TV Studios. It's for some reason that I don't understand a dramatic take on the story. Yeah, it's a mystery about where Cher went. It revolves around Dion, the character originally played by Stacey Dash. And it's described as Mean Girls meets Riverdale meets a Lizzo video set in L.A. in 2020. A network's not attached. I don't know what this is, Dan. I don't know why it is, Leslie. <laughs> that's a good, that's a better answer. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five topics. Leading off this week, the first casualty of the new broadcast season is in, and there's a catch. Number one. Mike Schur's Sunnyside, the immigration comedy starring and exec produced by Cal Penn, has been pulled from NBC's schedule. That's effective October 24th. The move comes as no surprise as it drew the smallest ratings of any first year show on the big four so far this fall. It launched with a 0.4 in the adult 18 to 49 demo. <laughs> That's the demo, of course, that is very much, very, very important to advertisers. Yeah, 1.4 million total viewers with seven days of delayed viewing. Those numbers improved to a 1.0 and 2.3 million total viewers. It's, hey, it's bad. On the bright side, if the show were on IFC, it would be a massive hit. Yes. And the catch, of course, is that nothing is ever really canceled anymore. Look, you know, we go went from a, an era where a show is outright canceled, meaning they stop production and subsequent episodes and scripts that were in the can are not being produced. And then we went to, well, they're going to finish producing it and the unaired episodes will air on Saturdays around the holidays and basically burned off. And then come May, then then it formally gets the canceled uh, you know, it, it meets the, the cancellation Grim Reaper. And then we get to Sunnyside, where the new trend is now it's in production. It will continue production on its 10 episodes. It's added one as part of this big move off of NBC, and it will air all of its episodes on NBC's digital platforms. So NBC.com and other different apps and things. It's surprising. We don't know that this is going to be canceled in May. It, it may very well likely, but then again, it could be a big hit on digital. This is, you know, kind of the new landscape we're living in. When you look at a show like AP Bio, which NBC canceled last year after two seasons, and then a couple of months later, revived for a third season on Peacock. Yeah, that's the funny thing is that it is just going to regular NBC.com, NBC app. Well, streaming. Yeah, that's because the Peacock is not up exist. yet. Yeah. It's Which, not launching until spring, April. So, so that makes it kind of an odd thing. Like they could have presumably held the rest of the episodes and just had them go as Peacock originals come spring. It would have been maybe value added, though, given how low the ratings are, it's hard to feel like there's much value at all. This is definitely a different twist it's it's new is there any logic to the one additional episode that they ordered or not i mean <laughs> the only thing i can think of is you know and this is just speculation i should clarify maybe they just need one episode to pull the whole season together if it's going to be one complete piece because the the thing that we forget you know when a show ends you know on its linear network 
it still lives forever on whatever digital platform, whether it's Netflix or Peacock or HBO Max or whatever it is. So maybe this is the new era we're in where these shows that may fail miserably on broadcast or a linear network wind up being part of a library of programming. And as we've seen with these nine-figure deals, like $500 million for Seinfeld, library content is so important to all these streaming platforms. It's content, it's an additional bonus that helps provide a backbone for these platforms that are all launching in the next six months. You know, save for Apple, which of course has no library content and is a completely different business model. But this is still, you know, look, you know, you on Lifetime was a complete and total dud for that network. It moves to Netflix. It's one of their top 10, allegedly, (laughs) most viewed original series. You know, if Lifetime had just pulled the plug and didn't have any kind of digital returns, who knows? You know, you look at shows like Breaking Bad. When that hit Netflix, it became a bigger hit on AMC. You know, and and the same is true for, look, we just talked about AP Bio. It's the same thing. It's definitely a a change of course. This is a a somewhat unique situation because NBC could not have done this if they didn't have Will and Grace ready to go. And perhaps more importantly, if they weren't aware that Will and Grace is effectively a self-starter. So basically, if NBC had only had a mid-season new comedy in the back pocket, this would not have happened because they would not have tried to premiere a new show in two weeks, whereas Will and Grace, they're like, okay, sure, this has its audience, it's going to do what it does, we know what its numbers are, we know its numbers are largely DVR-oriented. You know, this is a show that gets a very big bump out of DVR, so that's the thing that makes this kind of unique. I don't think we're going to see that many networks capable of doing this. You would have to be in this unique situation where you had a show failing just as aggressively as Sunnyside did, because those these numbers are remarkable you know if you think of what networks were doing a couple of years ago so right but it's also you know just playing devil's advocate here for a second we also don't know the big the full picture i mean some of these networks i remember you, you were there a couple of years ago tca bob greenblatt when he was with nbc comes out on stage and touts live 365 you know we don't know how these shows are being consumed we don't know which platforms but we do know obviously that l- no one's watching linear television anymore and if they are they're watching in delayed viewing i mean it almost du- you know sunnyside almost doubled its numbers in a week from zero to zero x2 so. yeah i mean well <laughs> well nothing times zero is nothing you know so but yeah i mean we're getting farther away from the from that but if you take one thing away from this segment it's that all these networks are still struggling to figure out how and where viewers watch their programming and what to do with them. You know, but I think the days of seeing a show outright canceled after two episodes where production stops and and that's the end of it, I think those days are over because like I said, you want to have something when you're done with it. You know, if you've spent, you know, $20 million on a show with marketing and production and et cetera, especially when it's from an important producer like Mike Schur. You want to have something at the end of the day. This isn't a case of, I always go back to the mob doctor. Remember that, that, that dog <laughs> uh, over on Fox a couple of years ago? That one was like, it, it was critically panned by pretty much everyone. The ratings were horrendous, but it aired all of its original episodes. I think it was the original 13 episodes because Fox didn't pick up enough shows to have anything in the bank to be able to pull it. And maybe repeats at the time weren't even an option. So oh, the times they are yeah. changing. Well, let's go to our second topic. What do you say, Dan? Up next, Apple! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Wait, no. Apple plus side! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Number two. 
Yes, it is nearly that time. It feels like we have been talking about the launch of Apple TV Plus for basically this entire duration of the podcast since we started, and we have. We just didn't know for a while what it was called or how much it would cost or how anyone would watch it or anything like that. But guess what? November 1st, it's just around the corner, and uh, for $5 a month, subscribers will gain access to originals starring Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Haley Steinfeld, Jason Momoa, other people. And yeah, you had a rather terrific and exposing story in this week's Hollywood Reporter. So I thought we would talk a little bit about that. We'll talk much more about Apple TV as we actually can delve into their programming in upcoming weeks. But up first, what actually surprised you most from the research and reporting that you had to do for this story in this week's THR. Well, I should make it clear that I didn't do this story alone. The amazing Natalie Jarvie, who will join us uh, for our next segment, also worked on this with me for a few weeks. And look, a lot of the reporting that's in this was basically like two years in the works. You know, I've been covering Apple and their push into scripted programming for, for the better part of two years. From the minute that they hired Zach and Jamie from Sony, everything that they did became super interesting to me. So... The big takeaways is, you know, much of the town is really unhappy with the early PR and marketing efforts around it. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of things that have been renewed already. There's a couple more deals and first look deals in the, in the works. We reported at the end of last week that Apple has launched a studio. They picked up the third entry in the Band of Brothers saga. HBO passed on doing it because that was a show that they really made money from off of DVD sales and in the streaming era, no one's buying DVDs anymore. So they passed on on the show that's going to wind up costing around $250 million. It's a sizable investment when you know that your return on that is coming from a, a sector that doesn't really deliver anymore. But with that pickup, launching an in internal studio, that means that Apple, like everyone else in this town, is going to be focused eventually on owning all of their content. That's a huge deal that, that I think not a lot of people really picked up on or reported um, as much. But you know, they've had a lot of, you know, in a larger sense, Apple has had a lot of early stumbles, lots of showrunner changes. Obviously, the morning show change was well documented. Um, Jay Carson was was hired specifically to write the morning show. Me Too happened. They brought in Carrie Aaron. There were issues with his early scripts. You know, look, when Reese Witherspoon and Apple and Jennifer Aniston and the studio media res are, are all unhappy with an early draft and then Me Too happens, they knew that they had to make a change. And that's what they did. And they brought in Carrie. And, you know, then there's changes on shows. I heard C is making a showrunner change that hasn't been announced yet. Uh, but that that is definitely in the, in the works. We've seen exits on Foundation and a couple of others. You know, I think what they're struggling for right now is is what their their tone is. I mean, it's been well documented that they want aspirational programming. When you look back at the, at the first series that they that Apple picked up, and this is well before Zach and Jamie joined as head of video worldwide video. It was a show called Vital Signs, which featured an orgy. It was like a Dr. Dre origin story. And that, which, by the way, Apple has never acknowledged existed. They produced all, I think it was like six or eight episodes were in the can. With and then, Sam Rockwell. Right. And, and so many others. And then they killed the show because, well, it was super violent and, and sexual. And one thing is not like the other. They were going for, you know, at the time they were going with Carpool Karaoke and Planet of the Apps. You know, these are aspirational shows. <laughs> one of these things is not like the other so yeah that that never is going to see the light of day i aspired to watch neither of those two shows yeah, <laughs> but yeah that's just and me. it's just you know it's it's a lot of change and and i think 
one thing that, you know, and this is part of what Natalie Jarvie reported when, in talking with analysts, is this is a, a big gamble. And obviously they, they have spent billions, billions. You know, look, Netflix is, you know, has spent in 2019 $15 billion on content. Apple's not quite at that level, but they have a cash flow of $1 trillion. It's insane to talk in these figures. But they're making this big push. And, and one of the things that Natalie mentioned with analysts, when you look at how many people have Apple products, the minute they wake up on November 1st, they will have access to a scripted show starring Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston, and they can watch it with by pushing their fingerprint on their phone because Apple's already got their credit card info. And who cares if they have a library? They have this reach of billions of customers who are already set up. So maybe that's their leg up. You know, well, I think, you know, this this is different from when we talk about the production budgets on the Netflix shows, because it's simply harder to fathom where the money is coming from in that ecosystem. When it comes to Apple, no one has to ponder where the money is coming from. The money is there. It's coming from all of us. We've been giving them that money for years Basically, Apple has their hand in my pocket right now as all of my devices are about to die. So, Dan, that does not sound like what you're talking about. <laughs> I, it sounds like exactly what I'm talking about. Any, but st So still, when your story gives numbers like the kind of numbers that we've been hearing on, on Morning Show and how much that show cost like what do you what do you want to tell the kids about the uh, budget of that show and how it got to be where it is? Well, I mean... Morning show, Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston are making $2 million an episode. Oof. I mean, just that's that's the high end in this in this peak industry. But the the piece that it, that we should be looking at is they also are owners and exec producers of the show. They have a piece of this through a deal with Media Res, which means they get back end points for whatever that's worth. I don't know how the yeah, back end how, structure of an Apple show is going to calculate the back end on something like this. I mean, especially when you know that what, what's Apple going to do? Are they going to sell it to Netflix? So it streams it? No, that's never going to happen. So I don't know what a second window is or maybe it's an international sales. I don't, you know, all of that is still, you know, still happening, but it's $15 million an episode. For morning show, they picked it up with a two-season order, so 20 total episodes. That's $300 million for two seasons of television. Then you've got C, which is the you know the futuristic genre drama starring Jason Momoa. It's $240 million for two seasons. That's been obviously been been renewed. These are all at the high end of these these big packages, you know. And you know, look, morning show was competitive. Netflix wanted it and was bidding too. Apple also, as we reported a couple of weeks ago. They were a player on J.J. Abrams. They offered him $500 million to come and make TV and films exclusively for Apple. And he said no. And he opted to continue to have more freedom by staying at Warner Brothers for half the money, meaning he can keep selling shows to Apple. They've got three of them in the works from J.J. and Warner Brothers. He can keep selling to Apple. He can sell to any platform that he deems he could sell a show to Netflix tomorrow because Warner Brothers as an independent studio has that ability. If he had signed with Apple, it would have limited him. And he wants, and the other piece of it is, I'm told he wanted to be able to have his films distributed theatrically. This is utterly mad money and mad numbers, and it's all screwy as hell. And I guess we're just going to have to keep following it. But now we'd better transition to our next topic, which also involves ridiculous 
ridiculous amounts of money that yeah. make my head hurt. And one last thought on Apple. We will have more on the the first slate of their shows, Morning Show, C, Dickinson, and For All Mankind. That embargo is coming up, Dan, I believe in a couple of weeks. So you'll have some critical thoughts. You started to see some of those episodes. Uh, same with me. And we may have someone coming in for our showrunner spotlight pegged to the November 1st launch. So definitely stay tuned. Something, Much more to come there. Something to look forward to. Up third, number three. Netflix has reported its third quarter earnings, which meant a exhaustive and news-filled call with reporters and shareholders and all of that fun stuff. This was also following after the last quarterly earnings call where they had to admit that there was a decline in subscriber numbers and the roof was falling or the sky, sky, roof, whichever. It was falling. So on the back of mega hit Stranger Things... Netflix moved up to 158 million global subscribers, adding 6.8 million in the third quarter, including a not so impressive but not disastrous 520,000 in the United States alone. So up, better than down. <laughs> Joining us to break down the entire earnings report is THR's digital editor, Natalie Jarvie. Welcome, Natalie Jarvie. And Hi. marathon runner, Natalie Jarvie. <laughs> yes. Thanks, guys. We should also, and we, we just praised you. You were not here, but we praised you also for your very fine work in the Apple story, uh, which the whole thing is terrifying. And basically. you wrote this week's cover story on Disney+. Plus, So you are... It's been a busy week, but I couldn't have done the Apple story without Leslie, so... Phew. And you ran a marathon in under four hours. Way to go, Natalie. Let's talk about the marathon. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> but seriously, what was it just let's just go from the top. What was your biggest takeaway from the call? What was the kind of tone that they were trying to set on this one as opposed to previous calls? Yeah, the thing that's interesting about Netflix is that they live or die by that subscriber number. No one cares about how much revenue they bring in, what their profits are. It's all about that subscriber number right now. So it was very clear that they, you know, wanted to show kind of a, a position of strength heading into a uh, competitive next few months with a lot of new services rolling out. So it was important that they, you know, got really close to the 7 million subscriber additions that they had forecast. They came in just slightly under at 6.8, but close enough that investors responded really favorably to that. And then, as you mentioned, the, the key was that they added subscribers in the U.S. this quarter where they had lost subscribers previously. Now, five 520,000, though, that's not that many. So there is this question of, are they starting to kind of reach market saturation in the U.S.? And how do they respond to that? So that international number becomes increasingly important because that's where all their growth is going forward. Um, and they also did forecast that they're going to have kind of a maybe a softer fourth quarter, about 7.6 million subscribers overall, which their fourth quarter is like historically their big quarter. But they're definitely acknowledging that there are these, you know, kind of competitive headwinds coming and uh, that, you know, they don't think it's going to have a long-term impact on their business, but in the short term, as people try out some of these new services, they could see some softness and in, in gains on their side. Right. So Apple TV Plus is launching November 1st, which we've talked about in this episode. And then you've got right around the corner, Disney Plus launching, and then coming up in the spring, HBO Max and Peacock. Yeah, the streaming wars, they're here. They are. Now, 
My favorite part about Netflix earnings are the graphs in the shareholder letter or what the commentary on the call where Reed talks about competition because he always says something funny, you know. At one point they were competing with sleep, you know, then they were competing with Fortnite. You know, now they mention that they, you know, are significantly smaller than YouTube on a global basis. So it's always kind of fun to see how he positions Netflix. And, you know, he's acknowledging that there could be some, you know, good programming on some of these services. But he also pointed out that in the U.S., where Netflix has seen a lot of its growth over the last several years, that they were facing competition from Hulu for a while, and that their growth patterns in the U.S. mirrored that of Canada, where Hulu wasn't operating. So they're basically saying they don't think their growth will necessarily slow down over time just because there are more services. In fact, they claim that Netflix and all these other services are actually competing with linear television and taking subscribers away from the cable bundle, not taking subscribers away from each other so we're gonna kill tv just not we're gonna get killed i that's i don't the whole thing is very disconcerting to me <laughs> that's the argument i mean we will see how it actually plays out and uh it will be interesting to watch if netflix's subscriber growth slows even further as these new competitors come around but you know, they still have a really healthy head start, so they're not going anywhere And is the point soon. that they've beaten sleep now? Yeah. That, uh, like, sleep is a thing of the past? Because I ag agree with that contention. Well, you know, if you keep watching Netflix long enough, there's that button that comes up that asks you, like, do you want to keep watching? Which always cracks me up. Like, I think it's for those people who do fall asleep while they're watching Netflix, and, and then it shuts off, but... I, I mean, that's that. called a sleep timer on RTV. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that I've ever experienced that. Apparently, I need to watch more Netflix. I am not watching nearly enough Netflix. You're clearly not watching enough television, Dan. Yeah, but they also <laughs> Netflix also released some viewership, and we should clarify, they don't release formal details. Like, none of the streamers release any kind of information. And when we talk about the numbers that, that Netflix released, we should clarify that these numbers mean one household account watched 70% of one episode. Or one so, film. Or one film. film. Yeah. So two-thirds of an episode of Stranger Things. So they touted some Stranger Things data. How? What, what did they say about it? Yeah, so no surprise, Stranger Things is their biggest show ever based on what they've released so far in terms of data. Uh, so they said 64 million households watched at least 70% of an episode within the first four weeks. That does put Stranger Things on top of all the other shows that they've disclosed uh, viewership information about in the past. We were expecting it would be a pretty big hit for them. I mean... They did say during the second quarter that, that some of the softness they experienced was as a result of not having a big hit. And obviously, Stranger Things is about as close as they get to a tentpole these days. And then so. they've got The Crown coming in Q4. Q4 will be interesting, too, because they have a lot of movies. And they have both Oscar contender movies, which they actually called out as Oscar contenders, which was kind of funny, or Oscar hopefuls, or I can't remember the exact phrasing. But um, And then they've also you know, got some you know, kind of broader hits. It's the largest movie uh, release schedule that they've had so far uh, and it will be interesting to see how that impacts subscriber numbers too because uh, they did note on the call that you know movies are something that people will still pay for you know people will still go to a movie theater and pay upwards of ten dollars fifteen dollars to see a movie and so they think or hope that people who haven't signed up for netflix will will maybe weigh that it's worth it to sign up and see some of these films well in addition to stranger things what were they boasting about numbers for 
Yeah, so they also mentioned that Unbelievable, uh, which had been kind of a, a bit of a sleeper hit maybe, but I feel like a lot of people have been talking about it in the last few weeks, uh, was viewed by 32 million households or member accounts during its first four weeks. And La Casa de Papel, or Money Heist, was viewed by 44 million member households. Uh, so that's on the um, on the series side. Uh, the films that they called out included Tall Girl, and Secret Obsession. None of those have uh, gotten anywhere close to what Murder Mystery had, but um, all did pretty well. Tall Girl had 41 million households, and Secret Obsession had 40 million. Those are unlikely to be Oscar contenders. Yeah. Yes. But the biggest, I think, the biggest number that we talked about after the Netflix earnings was their content spend for 2019. And they confirmed that it's $15 billion that they've spent on content in 2019 alone. Yeah, that's been the estimate for a while, uh, but they finally actually used that number themselves. And that's pretty sizably larger than the $8 billion that they had previously disclosed. So, you know, they've clearly been really ramping up their content spend. Now that's both for licensed and original programming. Uh, but Ted Sarandos said something interesting on the call uh, where he, um, actually kind of from prompting from Reed, he told us that the cost of a highly competitive TV show has gone up by 30% over the last year. And he attributed that specifically to the increase in competition. So you could imagine, you know, whereas before Netflix could kind of come out and name their price for a show like Morning Show. And they'd outbid everybody. Yeah. And they could outbid everybody, get it for whatever price they really wanted to at a certain point. Now, you know, Apple can come in and say, you know, we're going to spend even more. Yeah. And, and they outbid them for Morning Show. Exactly. So um, that's a kind of an interesting stat and, and maybe contributes to why we've seen such a large large uh, jump in content spend. Yeah, and they're now being kind of forced to deal with the, the market that they helped create. Well, exactly. I mean, for a long time, it was Netflix that was uh, pushing all the pricing up. So it's really interesting that now they're feeling that from other players. But the one thing I, that I'm hoping you can clarify here, how long can Netflix continue to exist spending this kind of money? Just This is just on, on content alone. That's not including all, you know, salaries for its employees and, and the technology and everything else that's going on. But when you look at their operating income and their profits, when you're spending $15 billion, how is this sustainable? Well, it's not right now. I mean, although Netflix technically records a profit during the quarter, they amortize the cost of programming over the lifespan of that programming. So they're not necessarily recording the full cost of a show like The Crown during the fourth quarter when the second season comes out or during, you know, the third season, excuse me, um, or during the quarter when they're producing that show. They kind of spread that cost out, which is why they're able to record a profit when technically they're burning through cash every year. So they're in an investment phase right now. And the question is, when will that kind of start to top out? Now, there's a lot of different things that they can do to make up for that $15 billion. They can raise prices, which they have started to do. They can find other ways to cost cut. Um, you know, they will can eventually get to an even bigger subscriber base that can, you know, pay for that. But they have acknowledged, I mean, I think that they're in this moment of kind of investing in the programming. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they've seen this um, kind of landscape ahead of them where all these other companies were going to start taking back their programming and they were going to need to to have a really massive library that could stand on its own. So which is why they signed Shonda Rhimes for 100 million and Ryan Murphy 
Murphy for 300 and the Game of Thrones creators for 250 million, you know, like. Exactly. So presumably at some point they, you know, will have enough of a library of shows that they own that they can maybe take their foot off the gas a little bit and, um, you know, slow down on the original production because, you know, even if they stop producing originals right now, it would take forever for someone like me to get through all the shows that they've released. There's and movies, hundreds yeah. of shows and movies that have passed me by. So, you know, there's a lot of library there. They're, they're hoping that there's a lot of library there that eventually will be able to kind of keep people entertained if they have to kind of scale back the production. And looking ahead, do we have any sense of how much content spend they'll have in mind for 2020? I mean, they didn't say, um, but fifteen billion in twenty nineteen is is pretty sizable. So we'll have to um, we'll have to see if they can you know push that up further, or if that you know if that's going to be kind of the number for a while. I am doing my part to support and uh, advance the cause by continuing to sign up for the DVD program and not return my DVDs. So basically, I am subsidizing Netflix, give or take, by ten dollars a month, just out of my generosity and uh, kindness. Or laziness, one or the other. I would really love to know what happens to all those DVDs. I think a lot of what happens is people like you just never returning them. But um... <laughs> they're just they're just sitting next to my TV, and there have been the same three DVDs there now for a much longer time than I would like to admit. So you're welcome, Netflix. I'm doing my part. <laughs> Anything good? Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently nothing urgent. At some point, I must have thought they were good, but yeah, they're just they're just sitting there, and yet I don't put them back in the envelope and cancel that part of my subscription. It's like season three of The Office, disc number two. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They are three movies, and I don't know what they are. But apparently I've never been in the mood in the past X number of months to watch any of them. So, great. (laughs) Well, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations again on the marathon. It's a huge deal. Thank you, guys. Number four. It's time for another showrunner spotlight. Joining us this week is the creator of The CW's Legacies, the third show in the Vampire Diaries franchise, and the exec producer of the network's Roswell. She recently sold drama series The Girls on the Bus to Netflix. Please welcome Julie Pleck to TV's Top 5. Welcome, Julie. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start with Legacies. Obviously, now, as we said, it's the third show in this in this franchise, returned this month for its second season. When you and Kevin Williamson originally developed the flagship back in 2009, did you imagine it would have this kind of staying power? Not in a million years. The staying power of this, I guess we'll call it a trilogy, although I honestly could keep going, has been such a delightful surprise and really just the byproduct of kind of lightning in a bottle casting and never ending fandom that just will never walk away. They just they they can't quit. And us and I think it's kind of beautiful. Well, okay. So you mentioned you can you can view it as one or you can view it as three. Do you, to some degree, think of it as a two hundred and seventy episode plus and counting single TV series, or can you, in your mind, kind of distinguish between how these three shows are autonomous? The best part of doing the different shows is that each show was able to find its own identity, and it's not even like I went in saying, "Oh, this show needs a different identity than the other show." It just it allowed us to stretch our tone muscles and our voice muscles in ways that Vampire Diaries was very boxed in, and it was boxed in with purpose. We had very strict rules about tone and how far we were able to go, about the world of magic that we lived in. We were dealing fundamentally with just vampires, werewolves, and witches, and and you know, and then any variation there. Of, but we just would not let ourselves break outside of the rule structure that we had built very early on, which made 
breaking the show incredibly difficult week to week. I mean, it was just, it was hell. Week to week to week, like brand new movie every week, no procedural spine, no format, just start from scratch and see what happens. And um, it made for some pretty extraordinary television. Um, I hope other people agree, uh, but it was hard. And so the originals was about taking a more Shakespearean approach, more adult approach to that world. And Legacies was about having more fun and more like youthful delight in it and being able to work from a procedural spine with the monsters of the week and kind of throw back to shows like Buffy and even early Supernatural, the stuff that we all loved so much. So we get to play in all these different sandboxes and yet still live in the same magical universe. And it's just been so fulfilling. Well, I think without any question, Legacies is a lighter or funnier show than the other two in their initial runs. Do you specifically want to avoid it going too dark? Because obviously it has the dark DNA from the other shows, but do you want to make sure that you continue to laugh each week, I guess? Yeah, the comedy of Legacies was one of the greatest surprises to me. I knew going into the show that I wanted it to be lighter and I wanted it to have a bit more of that, like you know, my early voice comedy, you know, the the mean girl, the Heathers, the, the snappy dialogue, that kind of stuff that, hilariously enough, we didn't even really do that much of on Vampire Diaries. We strayed away from the Buffy voice and, and really lived just very specifically in the Kevin voice. But... The great surprise was my show running partner, Brett Matthews, who I never found to be that funny of a person. And yet it is <laughs> fucking hilarious. And those stuff that he comes up, I mean, we're literally, <laughs> he's right now directing his first episode. It is an episode that he wrote in which Santa and Krampus go head to head <laughs> for our Christmas amp- episode. So that kind of stuff is stuff I never think of on my own. And Listening to him pitch the comedy and realizing that it all works and it works so well was the best part of launching this series. And from that lightness came my decision that I don't want to go as dark as we've gone in the past. And in a way, it's almost like a reflection of the world today, where we are, what I see kids going through on a day-to-day basis. I think when I first was writing this show, the Parkland shooting had just happened. And I thought, you know, I want my kids in this show to be those kids. I want them all to be kids that come out of a place of trauma uh, or something extreme in that who they are is now different for ever different than what anybody else is. And I want them to rise above by finding their strength and their uniqueness and their power and the good in the world, even if the world doesn't see them as good. And it, so everything started to be influenced by the, the world outside. And so we don't really use guns unless they're in an adult's hands. And even then, that's a human adult. We try not to blindly kill people. We try to be respectful of of the youthful energy of the show and to paint the world as a place that maybe we'd all like to live in a little bit longer. And that's a, just a byproduct of, of the world and, and the humor that we were able to find along the way. Yeah, I mean, one of the, you've mentioned this, but one of the comparisons that has been drawn is to Buffy, which I Obviously, I've known you for a long time now, but I know that you're a diehard Buffy fan, myself included. (laughs) But how much of that was in the back of your mind when you were kind of developing this of saying, I want it, you know, like, this is my Buffy? I I think a lot of it. I think that when we started Vampire Diaries, I always thought it would be sort of like a new Buffy, right? And then very, very, very quickly 
having a lot to do with Kevin and what Kevin loves and what Kevin wanted it to be, it just went in a complete different direction. And I love it and I'm super proud of it. And so in a way, this comes full circle to what I maybe thought that show would be at the beginning. And I call it my love letter to Buffy and to Harry Potter. I mean, that's basically what it is. You know, all homage, <laughs> all respect with the homage. Um, I think that those are two worlds and two extraordinary characters and, and, and casts and, and, and tones of things that I've loved and that so many people love and to be able to be a part of celebrating that also by evolving the Vampire Diaries universe to that level as well has been a real pleasure. Well, obviously, Buffy was a show that started off very, very episodic and sometimes, you know, endearingly silly and fun and then did become darker and darker and darker as it went along. Is that something you'd want to avoid, given that you want to keep this grounded in a kind of happier version of the world to some degree? It's definitely television writing and long running series. It's a it's a a fascinating ever evolving organism. And I think sometimes you can go down a really dark path because as a group of writers, you feel dark and you feel stifled or frustrated by staying in the same lane again and again and again. And so it really becomes an issue of what story you want to tell, why do you want to tell it, and how much do you want to stick to the guns of where you started versus how much do you want to break free and spread your wings a little bit. And so it's impossible to predict. I mean, right now, sitting across from you, I would say I would like the show to run 10 years and be <laughs> as fun and warm and yummy as it is now in another decade, you know, but... That's because we haven't run out of stories to tell. <laughs> you know, you said that this, you envision this as kind of a trilogy, knowing what you know about the state of the industry that we're in right now. Lots of spinoffs, lots of reboots. Is there a fourth show in this world? Absolutely. I mean, that's the joke. So Matt Davis likes to call it a trilogy because he likes to give it that level of of importance. Now, this is, you know, the Alaric Saltzman trilogy, right? I certainly don't sit around all day and think, how can I financially capitalize off of, this, <laughs> off of this series and continue to churn out one show after another? That's never my intention. That being said, when you're dealing with an ensemble of a, a group that is growing and growing and growing and you find these characters who you love, who you feel like you're not using in the right way, and you, you ask yourself, well, where could they go that could give them a place to shine? Alaric Saltzman was a character on Vampire Diaries who never got used in the way I wanted to use him. He was always a Giles in my mind. He was going to be the Giles to Elena's Buffy in that way. And um, and then the character just never went down that road. And now he is the co-star of his own series as the Giles to Hope's Buffy. And so... It's about finding homes for the characters that you love. And already we have another one that we're just, you know, we just we casually mention it every time we go by the network. We're like, by the way, when you're ready, we've got another one. And uh, who knows if it'll happen or when it'll happen. It's just a fun world to be able to, you know, drop some beloved characters into and know they could really thrive in a different context. Any details uh, that you can share about what that fourth one is? Um, no, honestly, I mean, it's like literally I said to Peter Roth, I'm like, by the way, like there's another show here. And he's like, cool, great, let's do it. And I'm like, OK, I'll call you in a year when I've got time, you know, but it, it's it's a it's a it's a more urban version of it. 
Well, do you sort of have a consciousness of sort of the unprecedented nature of that? Because I can think of spinoffs of spinoffs that existed. Like CBS feels like they have a few of those. But the idea of a spinoff of a spinoff of a spinoff, does that kind of make you <laughs> giddy? The, Dan, the... you just lost me on that. <laughs> you know, Vampire Diaries was my first show I ever created, right? And, you know, obviously I did it with Kevin Williamson and it was based on his book series. And so there was a there was a high degree of success teed up there. So I certainly don't take most of the credit. But to think that now a decade later, and it's a decade because this is the year, the 10 year anniversary of Vampire Diaries airing for the first time, that we are on track, like you said, what did you say, 270 some? I'm going for 500 at least. <laughs> Cumulative 500 episodes. Why not, right? I think that that's a, a good bar to set. You could become um, the Dick Wolf of Vampires. I am the Dick Wolf of Vampires. I mean, that's like, <laughs> I think Sean is at, like, at that level too. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. I, I think it's, it makes me feel proud of myself because I was the one in the trenches doing the heavy lifting and seeing it through and remaining in love with the world so much so that I didn't want to leave it in anyone else's hands. So I'm proud that I can say that I grew it to what it is. And hopefully it will continue to keep growing um, with me and without me. Well, the question obviously then becomes, you know, at what point are you just whiling away the time before you can just reboot Vampire Diaries and it all becomes a circle <laughs> going around and around in circles. <laughs> and then I never write anything but bloodsuckers for the rest <laughs> of my life. Which, by the way, it's so funny. I mean, my background, yes, I grew up in this business working for Wes Craven um, as his assistant and then his executive. And then I worked for Kevin Williamson for several years. And so my background is in genre and is in horror. And yet that's certainly not ever the road I meant to go down. And the the beautiful thing is that I always say, I, I just want to write epic love stories. I want to write, I want to write stories about powerful relationships, uh, whether they be sibling relationships, familial, romantic, whatever it is. I just want to tell those stories and no one will let me tell those stories unless there's a, a zombie or a vampire or some kind of, you know, witch floating around and um, they're just easier to make and, and easier to get on the air. And so here I am, the vampire queen of, of the moment. And uh, it, it wasn't even something I, I planned on. Yeah, I mean, I think the first time that you and I wound up speaking was at Comic-Con, like, eons ago. And I think we stood in the middle of the Warner Brothers party for, like, an hour talking exclusively about, like, Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. Yeah, I mean, oh, my God. <laughs> Friday Night Lights, I mean, I grew up on, I loved... I loved television. I loved Little House in the Prairie. I loved L.A. Law. I loved um, when I first got out of college, it was my so-called life and Party of Five and uh, and Beverly Hills Niners U.N.O., the original. You know, I was first on the on the train for that. All I've ever wanted to do is to tell like a teen drama or a family drama or a great love romantic drama. And that's what I'm doing. And that's the best part is I am doing all of those things. I'm just doing them in the bubble of a genre, which makes them fun and thrilling and powerful and emotional and exciting and tense and very popular. So it sounds like really you would have wanted the Stefan Salvatore football star arc on Vampire Diaries to have gone on for three or four more seasons. Absolutely. It got truncated much too early is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which, by the way, we just are the next week at Legacies airs its uh, its second annual football game episode, which is our love letter to the Friday Night Lights of the world. You know, in a larger sense, behind the scenes, you've quietly fostered a new generation of showrunners. Um, former Vampire Diary showrunner Caroline Dries is now running Batwoman. 
and a friend of TV's top five, Karina Adley McKenzie, <laughs> a former reporter, is now running Roswell. Is training new showrunners something that you set out to do or has it been one of the, the nice bonuses of your success? Yeah, it's it. I can't say something I set out to do at first because I was a toddler thrown into the deep end without a life vest. And so I spent the first couple years of my own experience as a showrunner just trying like hell not to drown. And certainly and in drowning, not to take anyone else along with me. And it was dicey there for a while. <laughs> Caroline, when you inevitably sit down with her, can tell you that, you know, the first couple years of Vampire Diaries was, as I've said, really hard and we were all just clinging on to each other hoping that you know the the titanic cleanup crew would come along and save us before we died but i had a a moment i guess in in season 3 uh, one could call it an epiphany or an awakening or whatever in which i realized i had been spending so much time trying to get the work done that i had neglected to teach anyone else how to do the work to help me and that if i were to you know break a toe and need to stay home for two days or worse, develop some f terrible illness that took me out of the game or even just need to sleep for a three day period to heal that the entire machine would crumble. And that's not a good place to be as a leader. I mean, it's great that I had my hand in everything and woohoo, like good on me that I'm so involved, but like I, the machine would have broken if I had broken. So I just took stock of who I had on my team and evaluated who was good at what and then I set out to make them recognize that I believed in them and that I believed that they were good at certain things. Caroline Dries being, you know, extraordinary in, in her creative mind. Michael Narducci, who ended up being my partner on the originals, and Brett Matthews, who's now my partner on Legacies, like I was able to sort of look and say, what value does this team add and how can I make them feel good about that? And then I sat back a little and tried to let them fly. And it took a while for me to be able to not be like, hey, ooh, hey, easy, like careful, you know, but they all and a lot of people on that team really blossomed. And that just, you know, it showed me, well, OK, control freak, like if you're stifling everyone and you're afraid, if you're afraid that everyone's going to fuck up your baby, then really what you're afraid of is that you're going to fuck up your baby. And so if you're already convinced that someone's going to fuck it up, probably you, well, then why not share the wealth, right? <laughs> you know, if we all work hard together and we believe in each other, then like, and at the end of it all, the work will get done. And if somebody does something that you don't like, you can fix it. Or maybe it's better than what you would have done and you don't like it, but everybody else does, you know? So it's about training people to be future showrunners is about opening up your heart and your creative mind and, and, and to their vision and to their process and seeing if something that they're doing is better than what you could do. I think historically in this business, there's a lot of horror stories about showrunners who come in, you know, with a creator or something else and just try to take over the show. And I think that's so ridiculous because the job is so goddamn hard. Why would anybody want to steal it from someone else, right? It's already a 10-person job. And 10 people can't even really get it done, even working 24-7 in the right way. So I'm a big believer in bring people along for the ride so that they can ultimately shoulder the load and I make the joke that when I had three shows on the air at one point it was easier to run three shows or to be involved in three shows than it was to run one because you have to trust people you have to delegate and you have to believe in everybody else's point of view uh, otherwise you you won't make it.
did you know that that was going to be your your instinct when you started show running the sort of the all encompassing control freak side of things? Did you know that? I don't think you can know that you're going to be a control freak until you are the control freak and it's like manifest destiny, right? You don't know that you're a control freak until you take a look back from the outside looking backwards. You just set out to not fail. And in trying so hard not to fail, you scramble and you do and you and you control and you micromanage and you do all those things because, my God, the, the fear of failure is so terrifying that you can't let go of any detail. And so it takes a while to realize that you're your grip is so tight that the death grip you have on your own product is bad for everybody I and mean, mostly bad for yourself you know I mean like no one likes a murder right and and believe me I'm, I was a martyr for a long time before I kind of woke up and said let's let other people murder themselves for a little while <laughs> let's 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 expand this team and we'll make it a team of murders and it'll be more fun but you didn't need to have like a, a heart attack or some sort of major inciting event to convince you that it was time to approach things more sanely no but it was a I, I read a draft of an episode we were already so painfully behind and I read a draft of an episode that I needed to work and it was terrible and I threw the script across the room in my bedroom not at anybody just for the record <laughs> threw the script across the room broke down in tears got on my bed curled up into a little ball and cried for like 25 minutes and on the b side of that delightful little breakdown I I realized I needed to make some changes and I needed I needed to I needed to strengthen the team and the reason the team wasn't strong is because I hadn't used them uh, and I hadn't empowered them and I hadn't believed in them in the right ways and so it was just a big shift in consciousness in that moment so it was you know it was the sort of dramatic dramatic Gen X version of a heart attack right it was just like a big emotional breakdown yeah. <laughs> And I mean, you know, going back, you know, I, I want to touch on your career trajectory because I find it pr to be fascinating. I mean, most people when they're a development executive don't come into the writing. It, it kinda, yeah. You know, it kind of goes the other way, right? You go start out as a writer and then become and, and, and work up the ranks that way. But when you first started out, was this the end game was to be writer, showrunner and now director? The end game when I first moved into television was to be a showrunner, even though I had never been a writer. And the original end game was just to get to Hollywood and work in the business. And I don't know what the hell that meant other than that that's where I wanted to be. I believed fundamentally I would never be a writer. And I knew without any doubt that I would never be a director. And so, of course, those are the two things that I now love the most. The show running thing happened because I realized, you know, all my years of producing and being an executive, I had a skill set that a lot of writers coming up the, the ladder through the traditional ways didn't have. And so I thought, well, you know what? If I'm going to work in TV, I need to be a showrunner. <laughs> and then somebody called and said, hey, there's this job for a company that needs a TV producer. Would you be interested? Uh, even though I had just sort of declared that I was going to pursue a career in writing. And then I thought to myself, well, all right, if I'm going to be a capital S showrunner, how do I get there? And one of the ways that you get there is you produce a show that then you produce so well that they really love you. And they say, hey, you know, you want to write a script and then you write a script and everyone loves the script and it just goes so great from then on. And, you know, cut to woohoo, you're a showrunner. And I, I'm using that tone of voice because it's the most ridiculous, like secreted, dumb 
lofty goal that happens to no one, but that's kind of how it happened to me, is I, I took the job. I set up a show called Kyle XY that I did not write. I produced the pilot. I was producing the series. And very early on, I had mentioned to David Himmelfarb, the executive producer, that I wanted to eventually, in success, write an episode. And very early on, we lost our own or our only female writer. And he mentioned to Frank Spodnitz, who was running the show at the time, that I had mentioned an interest in writing. And so they gave me a script and it went really well and everyone really liked it. And then they gave me more. And then when the show got picked up for season two, the network asked me to quit my job so that I could just come be a senior writer producer on the show. So I went in year two, I think, at like supervising producer and just skipped. I skipped the five, six years of climbing the ladder from the writer side of I mean, I was already, you know, in the business for 12 years, so at least 15 years. So it's not like I didn't pay dues, but I didn't pay writer dues. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, the the directing thing, which you've been getting more and more into in the past few years, how does that feed into or out of your control freak personality on things? Is that is it healthy? <laughs> is directing healthy for you or unhealthy as an outlet? Directing is actually the most healthy because one of the most frustrating things about being a showrunner is that you can have your vision and you can have a perfectly clear sense of what it is you want to see on the screen and how to get it. And then you have to sit back and hope that somebody else can bring that vision to life without any interference from you. And a lot of episodic directors are actually very, very, very good at that. And I've had some terrific directors that have really elevated my material and the show's material and really killed it. So this is not a ding against directors, but as a showrunner having to be on set when you're already the busiest person in the universe and then you have to go sit on set and sit behind somebody as they get to do the job that you know that you could just like step in and be like, hey, here's a note that if you could do it this way and then try to like think of all the polite ways to give a note or how not like sit on your hands so that you don't give too many notes like that you can't talk up every take after every take. That's just rude. So it takes way too much self-control to be a good showrunner behind a director. But when you're the director, you just get to skip the middleman. And no disrespect to the middlemen. Middlemen are great. And and TV middlemen are particularly great. But it, for a personality like mine, it's so hard. I stopped going to set because I just, it, I was too disruptive or I it took too much energy to sit on my hands and keep my mouth shut. Either way, somebody was unhappy. And now beyond directing, um, you're also starting to develop again and selling outside of the CW. You've got a project set up at NBC, right? It's like I have reached my senior year of high school and have started applying to colleges and I got my first acceptance letter (laughs) from Netflix for the girls on the bus. It's I'm so excited about it because it is the first time I've been able to work outside outside the genre. I mean, Containment, which is a show I loved so dearly on the, that, CW, on the CW, was an adult show, a grown-up show. It had a virus a component, a quarantine element, so it still was a genre piece, and it was you know very horror-designed, even if it wasn't a horror show. But this is, this is my parenthood. This is my sex in the city. This is the story of you know the friendship that develops between four very different women as they travel the country following every move of a presidential election and it's everything I've always wanted to do and now I get the opportunity to do it and I'm terrified but 
exhilarated and uh, basically literally about to start writing it tomorrow. For the, for the first words will go on the page tomorrow. So it's a, it's a big week. Well, how hard has it been convincing people that you weren't just the genre woman, that you did have this other side? You know, it's funny. I don't think that the barrier to entry was convincing anybody what I was capable of. It was really more a matter of finally having the time to actually come up with an idea that was outside of my spin-off universe or the Roswell New Mexico universe which came up as you know a result of me having been Karina's mentor uh, or the tomorrow people which I did with Berlanti who which came up because he and I had both watched the show as kids and bonded over that when we were friends in college and so you know he called up one day and said we're making the tomorrow people and I said great and Warner's called up one day and said we're making Roswell New Mexico with Karina and I said great and then I of course you know had the vampire Diaries stuff and containment we took it to the networks and the cw really 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 wanted it and the networks really didn't care as much and the studio said we can take it to cable and you know this was pre-streamer but we can take it to cable and i said no let's stick with the people that have been good to me and let's 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 reward that loyalty and let's give them my adult show so this has been now finally me being able to say okay this isn't a cw show Therefore, we have no loyalty issues. We have no one's going to get you know bent out of shape if I if I spread my wings and I'm ready to spread my wings. And God, am I ready to get out of broadcast? No offense to broadcast. <laughs> I mean, lots of offense to broadcast in certain ways, which is a whole other podcast, which I can you know speak on for an hour. But in this case, no offense to broadcast. I just need to work in a in a format where simple things like not having to deliver not having to deliver an exact running time. Not having to shave those last couple minutes out of a perfect episode and ruining the episode. Um, being able to swear, as you've already heard, I have a bit of a potty mouth. And <laughs> having to come up with different ways to say Jesus, because you can't say Jesus on the CW, is, you know, takes more work than writing six scripts. I want to be able to, you know, get a little naked every now and then <laughs> and, and, and not have to build to commercial act breaks. I mean, my God. And deliver an episode in eight days. And deliver, like yeah, that, yeah, and deliver start your season six weeks after you get picked up and go 20 episodes and then do it all over again you know on a such a tight schedule the freedom of what is ahead of me is so thrilling I'm so excited and ask me in a year if it was worth it (laughs) (laughs) because I'm sure something will have made me miss and long for the days of a, a structured broadcast model but in the meantime I can't wait yeah, and at the same time, you are in, I think, with this nearing the end of your deal with Warner Brothers. Obviously, that market is exploding, but we're also in a landscape now where even if you stay, hypothetically, with Warner Brothers, that you can sell to anywhere. That's one of the benefits of being at an indie studio that doesn't have you know, its own network, its own cable platform, et cetera. I mean, they have those things, too, but they're much more of an independent producer. Now they've got HBO Max, which we touched on earlier, you know, and the ability to sell to anywhere. And now as you kind of look at the market, I mean, what's appealing to you? Obviously, we hear how much you love, you know, you're interested in exploring the freedoms that come with with streaming as well. But as you plot this next, I don't even know, is it your chapter 700 at, in, in your <laughs> you know storied career? As you plot what's next, I mean, what are some of the other things that you're looking to do? I mean, you've got a show set up at NBC that you sold this week, too. Yeah, I have been... Look, I love show running. 
I also think that show running is an incredibly difficult soul suck of a job. I will never stop show running, but one of the things that being such a hands-on showrunner has prevented me from being able to do is to broaden my world and to use all the muscles that I have. I am a producer who can produce for other people. I am a director who would like to continue directing. I am someone, I'm, I mean, I would like to hope that I can be a fixer because I think the idea of being able to go into somebody else's broken pieces and help them find the new puzzle is, is I'd like to spend the rest of my career doing those kind of things. And so the next phase of my career is going to be about really capitalizing on the creative relationships that I've developed over the last 10 years and the writers like Jake Coburn, who I sold the a new project with NBC to, and Karina, who I will always want to be in business with, and a, a whole list of other people that I really believe in. I want to be able to take them and say, hey, let's go tell stories. In a perfect world, I'd build like a compound of talent and just have a big house where we all get creative all day long and make a shit ton of TV shows. I'm not really sure how those things work work, but, you know, baby steps. I think that my, my retirement compound will be that, you know, <laughs> the, the artist commune. But I love, you know, as you said, you know, you want to make a lot of shows, but so many of these production companies and, you know, look, Berlanti is a prime example. A guy has got 19 scripted shows currently either on the air or in production. Is building your own mini studio something that's appealing? I mean, we have John Wells coming up on the podcast. And one of the things that we talked about is he built, he's turning his company into a mini studio. He's got 13 projects in various stages of development all across, the, you know, streaming, cable, et cetera. It's, is that something that you want to do? I, I'm a Gemini. And so my ambitions are bifurcated in that in that way that only the crazy and the sane twin could, <laughs> could have um, on one level. There is nothing that would be more thrilling than than starting to build the foundation of an empire. On the other side, there is a part of me that I have to love what I do. I have to believe in it and I have to feel it. So there is a, probably a critical mass at a certain point where it becomes a business and not an artist's endeavor. And I plan on spending the next probably decade of my career figuring out what that tipping point is. So the end game is to do as much as I can while I still love what I'm doing and never doing so much that I don't love it anymore. And I think that that is going to be an interesting adventure because you don't Where's really kind of realize you've hit critical mass until you're like deep, deep in, in the fuck of critical mass. So like, we'll see. But so right there's now... going to be one really <laughs> impersonal TV series and we're going to go, oh, OK. That, critical that mass point, right yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, but by the way, I mean, I joke about the compound, but it's in a way it's not a joke. I mean, I have friends who I think are brilliant. Berlanti being one of them, obviously Kevin Williamson being one. I have friends on the movie side that I think are extraordinary. I personally, like if I could just spend half of my days churning out amazing rom-coms for a streamer like Netflix or HBO Max or whatever and like you know to all the boys I've loved before and great you know that great genre that's dead on the and the feature side but like is coming back to life with the streamers I would do that too and so to be able to get a group of talented people together and just like the old UA kind of model I I'm not a business uh, level headed enough person to spearhead that franchise but certainly someone else should invite me to 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 enter that kind of club because I I would love it. 
I'm curious, last season you directed an episode of Riverdale, which was kind of you getting entirely out of your own sandbox. Yes. What was that experience like? That experience was great. And I, I should confess it's not entirely out of my sandbox because it's still produced on some level by Greg. And so, I mean, it's like it's not like they were going to be assholes to me when I walked in. Um, also, I think a lot of those, the cast are fans of the Vampire Diaries. And, you know, and, and so they were at least sort of semi-excited to have me there. I mean, but, Vampire Diaries built the foundation of what the CW yeah. is today. I mean, we glossed over that. But it's that was the flagship show before DC. Yes, it created an aesthetic to strive for. I think it broke boundaries of you know levels of how dark something could be, of how sexy something could be that didn't have to just be straight sort of soap opera sexy. It could be kind of adult sexy, even in a teenage environment. So I do think that Vampire Diaries kind of laid the groundwork for that. But what was great about going into that show in season two is that I knew I was going into an environment where they all knew just how successful they were. And and it was very different than either being, you know, in an environment where it's your own world, your own show, or in the case of Time After Time that I did when Kevin had a first season show where they hadn't even aired yet and they didn't even know what the show was going to be. So I was excited to walk in and feel that energy of people who are like, yeah, we are doing this and we are doing it well and people love it. And there's screaming fans on the street uh, at the locations we shoot at. And that energy of success and the invigoration of the thrill of the victory of what they had accomplished was just great. Because right soon after that, in the timeline of a successful t TV show is when everybody's miserable and wants <laughs> the hell out and really doesn't want to be there anymore at all. So I got to be right there in that moment where people were just really proud of what they'd accomplished and and willing to try anything and wanting to make everything as great as it had been. Nobody, nobody was phoning it in. It was great. Question we always like to ask people, and we know you actually like to watch TV, so you're going to have some <laughs> answers. What are you actually watching these days? Oh, God. You know, it's so funny. It's <laughs> such a hard question. I ask days. that question of every writer that I meet for staffing, and then I feel terrible because when people ask me that, I blank. Um, but because I've been asking it a lot, it's been on my mind. And the... The answer is the despair is in what I have not yet watched um, because there are seasons of shows that I love that I have not gotten into the most recent season yet or in the case of my favorite show on television right now Succession yes I am four episodes behind and I'm so upset because I was one of the first people on that train <laughs> I was one of the first people on Twitter to be like this show is fucking fantastic and now it's a year later and everybody's woken up to that and you know and and how wonderful it is and I was traveling so I fell behind and I and I have to catch up because I hear the finale is amazing but I really enjoyed season one of Mindhunter and look forward to getting back into that I I was so professionally envious of 13 reasons why because I love that world of you know straightforward John Hughes teen drama not even John Hughes just teen drama so much that when that show came on and I saw what they were able to do I died of envy like I, I can barely watch it I'm so envious but uh, I'm 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 owed season three of that I am excited about season four of Mr. Robot, which is one of my favorite shows. I, of course, can not live without The Handmaid's Tale. I'm devastated that Phoebe Waller-Bridges will make no more Fleabag because season two of Fleabag was complete perfection. And let me see what else. And then I do every now and then like to try to sample the new broadcast stuff to see what people are up to. Last year, I really enjoyed A Million Little Things 
and I actually enjoyed New Amsterdam. And it, it, I don't watch it regularly, but of of the batch, I was really into that show. So I think that that's the the, the broad summary. <laughs> You mentioned tweeting about succession. I'm curious, how are you feeling about Twitter these days? I'm oh, always curious God. about how anyone is feeling about that as a platform and what it does for them. <laughs> so Twitter and I have such a such a, a long and sorted relationship. Um, Vampire Diaries started right about when Twitter was really taking growth. Like what it was for me in the beginning was this incredibly fun totally casual playground where I could interact with the other actors on other shows, with the fans, where I could read in real time what people were thinking. And we all had a really great time and built an incredible fan community. And then it turns personal and then it gets mean. And then I have like sort of a a, a personal breakdown of like, why is everybody so mean to me? The bullying, the harassment, all of that, that is what makes me sad about Twitter. And it's uh, it's as much the bullying, the harassment, the targeted harassment, the v- sort of vile, disgusting insults and behavior that we see thrown around. But it's also the what they call the cancel culture, which is, you know, the hypersensitivity. I long for the days when people could just say what they wanted and not get in trouble. I mean, within reason, obviously, not the racist, stupid shit, but like, you know, just speaking their minds and speaking their truths. And now it's... It's either it's all promotional, it's all corporate, it's political, which, you know, I love the good political Twitter, like the next person. But I've gotten in trouble inside my life for one or two tweets that I've sent. I've gotten little lectures and little talking to. So, uh, you know, there's not a lot of freedom to express oneself in that in that forum anymore, which is, you know, it's just kind of a bummer. But it lives on. Long live Twitter. She said with exhaustion. (laughs) Well, that feels like a good place uh, to wrap (laughs) things up. Legacies airs Thursdays on The CW. Roswell returns mid-season. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, guys, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with The Critics' Corner. This week's new arrivals include Paul Rudd comedy Living With Yourself on Netflix, Looking for Alaska on Hulu, Modern Love on Amazon, Watchmen and Catherine the Great over at HBO, and Castle Rock on Hulu, plus Tyler Perry's first two BET shows launch as well. Dan, busy week. What you got? Oh, God, that's a lot of stuff. Um, First off, living with yourself on Netflix. I watched four episodes of it. It made my brain glaze. It's like multiplicity, only with Paul Rudd, only not particularly funny or creative. Um, I just, I, and that I, was a show that was originally developed for IFC, but moved to over to Netflix when, and honestly, when their budget it, exploded. I think it fits better on IFC because it is a kind of low key show. I was in fact shocked by how little out and out laughter there was, and also how little actual conceptual interest there was. It, it was pretty flaccid. Um, Catherine the Great is a great way to watch Helen Mirren for four hours. It's not the most interesting version of Catherine the Great's life story, I can imagine, but Helen Mirren, just fine. Uh, Modern Love, fantastic cast. I've seen a few episodes. Uh, Our colleague Tim Goodman loved it. I thought the couple episodes I saw were decent. I, I thought they were completely watchable, nice little star vehicles, 
Anne Hathaway's fun in hers, Kristen Milioti is fun in hers, etc. Um, of course, that's the anthology comedy that's based on the New York Times column of the same name. Exactly. Things are based on things in this week's uh, in this <laughs> week's episode. Looking for Alaska, you should definitely check out our podcast from August 2nd. That's episode number 32, according to your notes, uh, where we talked with Josh Schwartz about looking for Alaska and all things. It's a, it's a decent show. I don't think it's going to find a revolutionary whole new audience but i think if you are part of the very large audience that likes john green's ya novels you will find this to be a very satisfying blend of source material and auteur as it were it's it's solid it's it's not great um, and of course josh schwartz you know who along with stephanie savage is behind hits like the oc and gossip girl has been working on looking for alaska since before the book was published this has been a 15-year journey to the screen it was in development as a film at paramount it didn't work and then of course he took it out to the marketplace everyone in town wanted it and he set it up at hulu where he was already working with them on runaways it's a fascinating backstory it is. Then the show itself, solid. I need to get to Castle Rock this weekend. I am looking forward to it. But really, the thing I'm going to recommend this week is HBO's Watchmen uh, from Damon Lindelof, based tangentially to the classic comic series. Uh, there is much discussion and conversation about whether you need to have read the comic and seen the movie or whatever. You don't need to have seen the movie. That part I can just eliminate. I think that probably there are advantages to knowing the material. On the other hand, I don't think it's essential. I think basically if you know the material, there are reveals that you will know before they're actually featured on the show. But otherwise, you just have to be patient. I would say that this is Damon Lindelof working in The Leftovers mode. And if you happen to believe that The Leftovers is one of the best TV shows of the past decade, that should make you excited. If you are, however, someone who watched and got angered by the end of Lost, perhaps that's how you view Damon Lindelof. And I don't really know what to tell you other than that you should watch Leftovers because it's great. This is a show with high aspirations. It is going for some really big ideas about race in America, about the decline of American values, about vigilante justice, about our relationships with law enforcement and with ourselves. I don't know if they're all going to land after nine episodes, but I've seen six episodes. The pilot is great. A couple of the later episodes are really terrific. The fifth episode in particular is basically an episode of Leftovers. And the cast is just outrageously good. Regina King is wonderful. She will be nominated for an Emmy next year. You can write that down. Uh, Timothy Blake Nelson is fantastic. Jeremy Irons is having so much fun in a plot line that I could not describe for you if I wanted to. It is so loopy. Uh, and then you keep watching a couple episodes. Gene Smart, I don't think Gene Smart has ever been better. Gene Smart is a national treasure. So when I say she's never been better, that's saying Those a lot. Those are big words, yeah. It, it is just a, a wonderful cast. It's entirely possible this show could fall on its face in the last three episodes. I don't know, but I've seen six. I feel pretty good about it. I also feel fairly confident some people are going to hate this show and whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this sounds like it's already in, within your one of the year's best list, Dan. T t top 10 or 20. Well, again, we'll see where the last three episodes go. I'm definitely not going to I'm not going to put it in my top 10 without having seen the last three, but I can see how it might work its way in there. It's it is a high aspiring, big swing show. It is 
To me, it's the show that Westworld wanted to be and never has been. Uh, to me, it makes a lot of these kind of recent revisionist superhero shows, whether it's uh, Doom Patrol or The Boys, it makes them look, I don't know, low aspiration and simplistic. It, it is it is a big swing. But when things are big swings, some audiences aren't going to embrace them. And so, you know. Give it a shot. I think it is really worth watching. And yeah, that's that's my pick for what you should watch this week. And we will have much more with Damon Lindelof in next week's episode of TV's Top 5 when he joins us for a showrunner spotlight segment. We recorded this one yesterday. It is terrific. Very good. You should definitely check out next week's podcast. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you again for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, review us. It helps spread word of mouth. Uh, we also love to hear from you. We love to hear from you on Twitter. We also love to hear from you for potential mailbag segments. We got a couple good mailbag questions this week a little bit late. Also, there was enough news, so we didn't need it. But I think we are definitely eyeing a mailbag yeah. segment next week. Of the I week mean, after. the holidays are coming. Send us your questions. For sure. We, we are never feeling like it's a bad thing to have too many mailbag questions so you can reach us there at tv's top five that's the number five at thr.com until next week leslie until next week my friend anatomy of an ad subconsciously trigger emotions through music perfect Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.